This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Fega Bat David, whose Yertzeit, whose Yom Betira, was on the fourth day of the month of Menachem Av, earlier this week, this past Tuesday. This show is in her merit and in her memory and to Neshama should have an Aliyah. Now, normally, during the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, leading up to the ninth of Av, which is really the day of national catastrophe for our people, normally I would do an episode on Tisha B'Av, on our struggle for freedom against the Roman Empire, and on better understanding the freedom fighters who actually led our struggle against Rome. Uh, but because some of our friends, you know, members of the Vision family, Rudy Rockman and Noam Liebman, together with journalist David Benaim, were abducted last week by Nigerian security forces on false charges of making contact with anti-government separatists. I've decided to instead dedicate this week's episode to better understanding the situation they got caught up in, unbeknownst to them. You know, they went to Nigeria to film a documentary about lost Jewish communities, uh, but their efforts were hijacked by political movements uh, with specific agendas. And in order to better understand those movements and those agendas, uh, I've asked my friend David Mark to come and join me on the show. David has many years of experience researching and uh, connecting to proto-Jewish communities throughout Africa. So uh, I'm hoping that David will really, um, will really be instrumental in helping us to make sense of what's going on down there in Nigeria. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Yehuda. So David, um, you know, you've been dealing with and researching, uh, having contact with these, you know, what you call proto-Jewish communities in Africa for over a decade now, correct? Uh, that's correct. Uh, what can you tell us about the situation in Nigeria, specifically in relation to the Biafra movement? The, the, first of all, there's let's let's there's tremendous amount of let's say growing interest over the last two decades, more than that really. But let's it's been been hyped up over the last two decades, anywhere from Uganda to Cameroon to the Lemba and Zimbabwe, right? For these types of uh, indigenous Africans to that are more and more and more interested. In, in Judaism, that is a that's a known fact. It's been happening, um, and it's happening at a rapid rate. And we're let's separate between two different groups. One we know Ethiopian Jews that are largely here at this point, and what is uh, we say loosely called the Ibo in southeast Nigeria. The reason why I'm separating those two uh, groups is because those two groups actually have um, identifiable. Well, we know for sure the Ethiopian Jews uh, uh, have identifiable link to, uh, to Israel. But the Igbo, the Igbo community, by and large, has for a long time identified um, with some sort of Hebraism, let's, let's call it that. And this has grown over the last 100 years. And it's grown rapidly because they, unlike the other places, are squeezed into Nigeria under British orders when the British controlled the area. They squeezed three section, three areas into one uh, area called Nigeria. And that changes the nature of going to, going to let's call it Biafra or Igbo land or Nigeria in of itself. Because all of a sudden, 
you have a sort of a proto-Jewish, large proto-Jewish community, 30 to 40 million Igbo in Southeast Nigeria that are now not only identifying as Jews or some sort of Hebraic uh, community, I'll get into that a little bit later, what that means, but it's the context of their connection is now being filtered through an internal struggle of who controls Nigeria. And that becomes extremely important to understand what, what's going on with our friends down there. So first of all, what would you say is the Jewish connection of the Igbo community? That is complicated because the question comes down to is, what do you, what do you consider a Jewish connection? They certainly don't have connection to what we call traditional exilic Judaism of rabbinic Judaism, as we understand to be uh, over the last uh, bunch of centuries. That doesn't mean that they don't adopt, they don't wear talit or they don't uh, wear a kippah or they, that is all very new because in coming back to their Judaism or retrying to reconnect to us, they obviously took on certain, uh, certain outward looking um, traditions. Well, you're talking about their practices. I'm asking about their identity. Are they descendants uh, of the ancient Hebrews? Okay, so this is, um, once again, it's complicated because they are going to say yes. And they believe they're, they're connected through uh, Eri, son of God, right? Son of God. Uh, from the tribe of God. They believe themselves to be That's of the tribe right. of God. That's right. Yeah, that, that Eri made his way over there. By and large, you're going to find other people, the other, some Igbos that will say, no, we're also from this and this, this. But by and large, by and large, the, I don't want to call it mythology because that's not fair. But the, the, I guess the mythos that they're dealing with in their, in their construct, what they have allowed themselves to, 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 to accept um, is that they're from God. Now, I, we, there's no way to prove that or discount that. I, I can say there are some interesting, um, interesting names down there that would seem to, to support them. Mm -hmm. uh, the main shrine uh, in Igbo land is called Abu God. Abu is their version of the Beit Knesset. You go to an Abu to pray. Um, the, the Abu is where the leader is. So they call Abu God. And, and supposedly, uh, there's, I believe there's another one that, that, that has an insignia of Eri on there. So there is some sort of ancient connection. So that's very interesting because in ancient times, the Hebrew tribe of God was known among the Israelites as the tribe that was most fierce in battle, that often marched in the front of our wars. They even had a unique fighting style where they would uh, be able to take off an enemy's head and right arm in one strike with their sickle sword. So uh, it's just interesting that the Igbo would self-identify as descendants of the tribe of God, the warrior tribe. They're also involved in some kind of military struggle, correct? Um, yeah, in various ways. And, you know, we could segue into that. I just want to finish up in terms of identification. There's, there's three possibilities. I'm very reluctant to say, yes, they're a lost tribe. And I, I've grown um, in my understanding across the board. I, I really do believe saying anybody is a lost tribe, I believe that actually hurts our, our ability to interact with them okay. um, from a Jewish Israelite perspective. It doesn't mean that they're not a lost tribe. I, just, I think when we make claims and certain, they assume certain things are expected of them and right, vice versa. So I do believe there's two other explanations. And, the, and none of them, by the way, conflict with one another. Because if we understand the geography of the Niger Delta and the Niger River, it's the most fertile area in West Africa. Okay. And so it, it's not surprising various waves of, let's say, Israelite descendants would show up there if they're on the run. Mm -hmm. So the Sahara Desert in the time the Igbo would have showed up there if they're from the tribe of God, which means what would have happened is they believe that a, a part of God broke off, Ari, the son of God, or his, his descendants, and they broke off and they, and they moved south 
through east, east of the Jordan River, down through the Negev, down through down through the Sinai, sorry, and then and got to Africa. There's another explanation that they also left through the Yermiahu. Uh, there's they, there's different viewpoints. Let's just say they ended up in uh, Mitzrayim in Egypt in the Kush area, along with the Ethiopians, uh, who, who we believe are the descendants of the tribe of Dan. Right. Both the Hebrew tribes of Gad and Dan were part of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel after the split, meaning they weren't part of the kingdom of Yehuda with Judah, Shimon, Levi, and Benjamin. They were part of the, they were with the other tribes and they were exiled earlier. They were defeated earlier by the Assyrians, way before the kingdom of Yehuda was exiled by the Babylonians. That's right. So they would have ended up in uh, northern Africa in the what was today, you know, desert. Back then it was not desert, it was green. Mm -hmm or not as much desert, let's just say that. And they would have moved across, uh, if Dan stayed where they'd stayed in Kush, right, which is Sudan and Ethiopia, um, they would have moved across over a period of time um, because there's trading routes going back and forth and back and forth. And when they would have ended up in the most likely spot was where the Evo is today. Eventually, not the next day, but eventually 500 years, a thousand years later, as they moved across in cohesive units. Um, and they're actually considered outsiders to that area, to the area of Nigeria. The rest of the tribes in Nigeria consider the Igbo to be not from Nigeria or not from that area. Let's just call it the, Nigeria is, you know, modern, obviously, but the area of where Nigeria is. That's as, the one, that's the first, yeah. Outsiders as far back as when? Meaning if they're outsiders, when are they perceived to have shown up? Between 1,000 and 2,000 years ago. And that would still make them outsiders today? Yes. Okay. They're considered outsiders. Um, the other possibility, or this, it's not, not necessarily in conflict, is that the Portuguese people fleeing the Inquisition, especially in Portugal, um, were known to have moved in, inland in Africa. And they moved into the Sankai Empire, which is uh, where Timbuktu is in Mali. And, they, and that's how the Jewish community started in Mali. And that's about 500, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Islamic warlord that was there eventually made the decree that the Jews couldn't be there. And they went and destroyed uh, the Jewish community. And, and beforehand, the Jews moved south, most likely, along the Niger River, ending up down into the Niger River Delta, into Igbo land. But they would have had Torah, Torahs with them. They would have brought Jew, rabbinic Jewish customs with them. Um, and it, as I said, it's, it doesn't necessarily argue, it doesn't, it's not in conflict. It's not, it wouldn't be surprising to me that the Igbo that are already there would begin to start to being attracted to the customs of these, let's call them rabbinic Jews. Okay. The last possibility, which is also not in conflict, but yet would add to a more Jewish dimension, was at the time of the Persian uh, Empire, at the time of the end of the um, Purim story, we know that uh, the word mitihadim was used for the non-Jews that were living across the Persian Empire that converted to Judaism out of fear. And we know that the edge of the Persian Empire ended in Kush, and to me, that also adds in, it's about, what, 500 BCE, approximately. And they would have also moved west, eventually, those people, along trade routes, passively, and ended up in the Niger River Delta. All this makes, all this would add, would be combined to what we see the Igbo community today. Um, a repository of various waves of Israelite-connected people, um, some rabbinic Jews, some people carrying uh, Levite customs with them or customs from uh, we have Vaikra or, or, or things that we don't even do anymore, but we talk about um, in terms of traditions, uh, Levite marriage, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's their origins. 
And today, how, how does the state of Israel regard them? Does the state of Israel or do any rabbinic authorities see them as a genuine exiled Jewish community? They're beginning to. Um, the conservative reform movement, seeing an opportunity about starting two decades ago, jumped in there and tried to convert lots of people like they did in Uganda uh, erroneously mm-hmm. and to build up uh, you know, a sort of narrative. And that forced the traditional Jewish world to start taking interest in this. I was in a meeting a few years ago about representatives of big, big rabbis here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a Satmar community and one was uh, our were Sephardic uh, communities. I believe one was connected to Rav Mazuz mm-hmm. and I, I believe another uh, one was also uh, connected to Shas. I was in a, in a meeting with them. I didn't speak much. I just I sat there and listened and a presentation was given and the, the Sephardic representatives said that, that their understanding was they already checked. Their understanding was that this is true, all the information, that they treat that they see them no differently than Rav Vadi Yosef saw the Ethiopian Jewish community. Okay. The ones that have taken on Jewish customs. Mm-hmm. Um, the Satmar community also also felt that, oh, they shouldn't be brought to Israel. We should try to maybe bring them like they do everything else to Satmar land in America. Um, so they were off, but they wanted to work there. They wanted to go and stop the westernized Jewish movements from negatively affecting these people. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand that out of the 30 to 40 million Igbos there, most Igbos at this point in time practice some form of Judaism. They might still have a Christian belief in a Christian Messiah, but it's very passive at this point. We call them Sabbatians. That means they rest on Shabbat like the Seventh-day Adventists. They have what looks like synagogues, Batikaneset. There's pictures, you can see them. There's mechitzas. There's they dress all in white. They wear head coverings. The women cover their hair. Um, they have a sort of rabbinic figure. Um, you would not be able to tell the difference between that and any Jewish place of worship, other than the fact they make tacit comments about Yeshua, right? We know who that means. But it's not anything like we would recognize in Christianity. Um, that is a overwhelming majority of the Igbo community at this point. Okay. But it's a, that's a, that's contextually it's very important because if someone's not very aware and they look at that, they can make a decision halakhically that may may or may not be um, accurate. I'm just putting that out there as a as a first stage here. There is a growing minority of the Igbo out of that crowd that has shifted over to rabbinic Judaism, full on rabbinic Judaism. Okay, and so Rudy and Noam, I don't know David. David, I don't know personally, but uh, you know Rudy and Noam, I've done a lot of work with. Uh, I know that they went to Nigeria in order to document everything you've been speaking about the connection of the Igbo to the Jewish people, but somehow this was politicized by the Biafra movement. So can you explain that to our listeners? Okay, so the Biafra movement in 1967, interestingly enough, the same year that we fought our war of liberation of of Jerusalem and and Judea and Samaria and Sinai and Golan, they fought their own war. The British took three distinct areas in what is now Nigeria and and, uh, forced them or merged them together. And these were Lagos land, or Lagos colony, which is in Western Nigeria, today Western Nigeria, uh, Hausa land, which is the Northern part of Nigeria, and what we call today loosely by Biafra, which is not just Igbo land, it's Igbo, majority is Igbo, and then there's little areas that are not Igbo, and then they, and Biafra, and they're very distinct, all three. And in 1967, the Biafrans had enough because there was high, a high level of, um, of discrimination against uh, Biafrans, Igbo, Igbo were kind of synonymous at that point with Biafra, and they were um, basically discriminated by the uh, Yoruba, which is the majority tribe in Lagos colony, 
and the Hausa, the Muslim North, devout Muslims. And so the Biafrans decided to um, secede from Nigeria. And they fought a war and they lost badly. The estimates are about 3 million people were killed. 3 million Biafrans, Igbo were killed. In gruesome stuff, they're just massacred, massacred. And that happened, I believe, it happened in 1967. And so much of it actually is Israel airlifted supplies to Biafra. They actually airlifted supplies. And there's pictures of, uh, of Biafrans or Igbos with, uh, with blankets of uh, the Magain Dovey, the Star of David on it. It's very interesting. And there's already a slight, they reached out, like the Biafran world said, we're Hebrews, we want to, we need your help. This is 1967. Um, in fact, the YU student set himself on fire uh, back then. It, it was, became a very interesting, it was a very interesting connection. And, and, and there was an understanding that there was a, a deep connection there. Um, but Biafra kind of then got quieted down. They got crushed. And in the last 10 to 20 years, really in the last 10 years or 20 years, uh, various movements within that area of Nigeria have begun to fuse the Igbo uh, Igbo cultural like movement with the Biafran political separatist identity. And some of them are done through pure political means. Some are done um, through armed conflict and there's various different groups. Some want to not be, to not secede. They just want a more federalized system where Biafra land or Igbo land would be, uh, Biafra is larger than Igbo land, but let's just say Biafra would have its own federal identity, have almost a semi-autonomy and some would like to have full secession. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, each group merges to a certain degree Igbo identity to this, Hebrew identity to this. Um, the most famous leader, uh, who I believe, I believe is now arrested and back in jail in uh, Nigeria, actually he hid out here for a little bit, uh, was Mazikanu, right? And he, was, uh, he actually would walk around with Talit and... He would, uh, and his followers would have, wear Talit and, 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 and all sorts of stuff, right? And it was, uh, and he, he created this fusion because he saw himself as a Moses or David kind of character against uh, the current president of Nigeria, Buhari. Buhari is a dictator, a butcher. He actually, while he, he was one of the generals during the Biafran War who wiped out millions of Igbos. And, and he, uh, he, he tried to lead a, a coup at one point and he finally got, got elected president and he's, anti-Ibo, he's Muslim, he's from the Hausa, and he works together with the Fulani herdsmen, and he gets them to go down to Ibo land, and they butcher, they randomly butcher Ibos whenever they want to. And in fact, there's a, enough evidence that the way that uh, Buhari won the presidency was that he worked together with Boko Haram and allowed them to create chaos so people would elect him president to destroy the chaos. He was in cahoots with Boko Haram to do that. This is the type of guy who's running in Nigeria, and this is what they walked into, basically. They walked into a situation where Igbo now has been become um, politicized because anybody attempting to create an Igbo identity down there is now seen by Buhari to be some sort of, not just a religious identity, that is an independent identity from what he wants the Nigerian Republic to have. Okay. Just so our listeners know, when did Nigeria become an independent nation state comprising that territory? 1914. Um, there's a legality issue here because um, and I want to point out actually the flag, the flag of Ni- the, flag, the original flag of Nigeria had a, a, a Magain David in it also, uh, the original colony. <clears throat> and that was because of Biafra. They added that in there. It's important because there, there's a hundred year um, date from 1914 to 2014. And it was understood that, the, that Nigeria is a collected identity of three distinct regions would only would be a hundred years and then any region after that would be allowed to pull out. Okay. 
And so Biafra, the new Biafra movement, I call it the new because 1967 was the war. The Biafra movement, as we understand it to be, started gaining steam a few years before 1914 on purpose because they said, listen, we have this charter back in British times before it became a country, it was a colony, we're allowed to pull out. And no one's honoring that. No one's honoring it. Buhari, if Buhari cannot honor that, if Buhari honors that, he loses all the money that Nigeria has. Because Nigeria is one of the biggest oil exporters in Africa, if not the biggest. British Petroleum has a tremendous amount of stake in Nigerian oil production. Where is that oil production located? At the uh, southern part of Nigeria, the Niger River Delta, which would fall underneath Biafra, Uh which means what's going on now? What's going on now is Buhari's henchmen, his guys in the government, are sucking the oil wealth out of what would be Biafra and either redistributing it to the Yoruba in Lagos colony, which would be Lagos, now the western region, and the north. And they're leaving, they're leaving Biafra land or Igbo land very poor on purpose. Mm-hmm. And this is very, very similar to how Sudan was set up. What is today's South Sudan was where all the oil is. Two-thirds had no oil, and they pumped the oil out of southern Sudan into the rest of the country, taking it there and, and leaving South Sudan very poor. And who benefited from that? The Western world who wanted cheap oil for everything else. And the Nigerian government is backed by Western countries. Very much so. Um, And during Obama's day, he militarized Buhari beyond whatever anybody did before that. Uh Why? Because he was quote-unquote fighting Boko Haram, which is the major uh, Al-Qaeda outfit there, even though he was working with them. Buhari said, I need more weapons to fight Boko Haram. So Obama was great. And he wouldn't use the weapons against Boko Haram. No, he would use them against the Igbo to suppress uh-huh. any sort of uh, in, um, independent aspirations. This is in the, during Obama's uh, tenure. Okay. This has been ongoing since British times, since British colonial, colonial times. Hmm. Okay, so now what, I'm definitely making the claim. I know Rudy and know him very well. I'm definitely making the claim that they went into there not understanding any of this and just going to make a documentary about a lost Jewish community. There's no way they would have known this. It takes a while to pick up all the nuances. I've met with various different groups before in, in different countries. <laughs> I met I met activists in Ghana that were in exile there. I've met activists in, in, in Northern England uh, and America um, and Israel. Like It takes a while to understand the nuances of different groups. And you would have no way to just research this and say, hey, that, that making educated opinion. There's no way they would have known at all. Right. But they went to make a film about lost Hebrew communities. And what they were doing was, it appears to have been hijacked by the Free Biafra movement. Yeah, so yeah, so the Free Biafra movement would have seen them as, wow, uh, Israelis are coming here, our, our long lost brothers are finally supporting Biafra. Uh, and they would have justified it, what they're doing by what's called hijacking or um, using <laughs> their visit in a way which they think would have promoted their, their cause. Because they think the Free Biafra movement, let's not it's not all the same, but let's just give it, I'm just calling it that for, you know, time's sake and, and simplicity. A group that they were, that, that you did it, um, would have done it in a way that is, um, because in their minds, any connection to Israel, Israel will one day come and save them. They really believe it. Uh-huh. Okay. It's not that they're not joking around. The Biafran movement really, the free Biafran movement in all levels believes that Israel will come eventually and supply them with weapons to fight Buhari. Wow. And that doesn't seem to be happening. It will, it will not happen. It will not happen. What are the politics involved? Why wouldn't Israel support the Biafra movement? There is no, 
let's let's take an example of when we did get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, in South Sudan, the reason why South Sudan has an independence is because of Israel. Um, we, behind the scenes, supported the, the leader of the rebellion or the separatist movement. And they had one leader at the time, it was much easier. And we fled weapons and know-how to South Sudan. And over a period of time, they were able to pull out mm-hmm. and thus become a, uh, an ally of ours. And, and eventually, actually, it's now forced Sudan to, to sign up and normalize relationships with us. And we did it, and it changed the entire way things worked there. It won't happen in Biafra because there's not one leader. Hmm. And there's not a, and he was already fighting in South Sudan. He, he was already had some sort of organized, you know, pushback against mainland Sudan, if you want to call it that. Um, but you don't see that, in, you don't see that in Biafra. It's a very disjointed um, opposition. You have people, you have Biafrans or Igbos that are, I don't want to call them kapos, but let's just say um, they work hand in hand with Buhari while also like, you know, paying homage to Igbo customs. We have the similar stuff here. Um, and so because of that, it's very unlikely Israel would ever put themselves on the line to the degree uh, that they did in South Sudan. And if they're not going to do that, then all it's going to do is cause a lot of problems with, uh, with Nigeria. There's a tremendous amount of uh, business that goes on between uh, Israeli high-tech companies and Nigerian high-tech companies in Lagos, and they want to keep that going for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So what, in your opinion, would be the best way to bring Rudy, Noam, and David back safely and quickly? I mean, do you think it's realistic that the Nigerian government believes that they were really there to support a separatist movement against the regime? Um, I believe it's all about perspective. The, the regime believes now any Igbo cultural strengthening mm-hmm. is part of a separatist movement. So that, that, that's right there, the problem. We, you and I wouldn't do it that way. So what they're doing is talking about the Igbo customs and, and they're talking about you know, Judaism. But the, the more, the, the more that, that, that Judaism is seen as a, as, a, as a rallying cry and there's Israeli flags flying around, there's a lot of Israeli flags down there. There's, there's, there's openly identifiable Israeli symbols all over now, that area, more and more. And the more that is seen and this merger continues, the more that it's going to be, uh, it's going to be harder to like, disconnect the two things. And so that's what he kind of, he gets kind of like reinforced that for Bihari. Now, I don't think they're going to keep them here indefinitely. I, I'd just be crazy if they did. But I think they're trying to make a, a, a point out of holding them as long as possible because they want to break us going down there. Now, I was invited down there a few times. I didn't go down there because I, I figured I was on a list. What was I invited to do? The same thing uh, they invited uh, Rudy to do, to go down and meet with people generally associated with the Igbo movement, Judaism, things like that. But because I'd already been online in terms of helping out with Biafra, because I'd already met with Biafra leaders in various different ways around the world, right? I had no doubt in my mind. They're very, very good Buhari's guys. They have agents all over the place. I have no doubt in my mind that I was on a list and I didn't go down there. And that was me. I didn't go down there at all because I realized the second I got off that plane, I said I'm finished. And so that's what they're going through right now. This is, they've walked into basically a very cold uh, civil war, mm-hmm. a very lopsided civil war, right? Because Buhari has all the weapons and the Biafrans don't have, the Igbo don't have anything. But like, in reality, the Igbo are, are, are strengthening themselves. They build synagogues, they are strengthening their cultural identification. Um, and the more they do that, that is, it is seen as a, a form of civil war by Buhari. Wow. 
So from the perspective of the regime, you know, the Jewish identity that the Igbo are claiming is a threat. It's a direct threat because Kanu, Mazi Kanu, he, he merged them. To, they were always merged together in a latent sense, in a passive sense. But he made that in the last five to ten years the main way that he was promoting Biafran independence. That we are a Hebrew republic. We are a Hebrew this. I'm Israeli. He draped himself in the Israeli flag. And he, he spoke in very Hebraic terms. Um, I, I, I was close for a while and I met uh, secretly in, 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 in England with one of his close friends in the past, his close friend, not, not anymore. Um, and, and, and he said that, that there was a transformation in his way he looked at things, that he really felt that he was part of the Israeli people, the, the, the Igbo war, and that needs to be part of the Biafran struggle. And so the second he did that, the moment he did that, he merged all those together. Buhari has no choice but to actually see every single thing that goes on as a Jewish identification piece, as a direct threat to his rule. Remember, once again, he loses Biafra, he loses his rule, because there's no money anymore. Right, meaning all the oils in Biafra. That's right. Now, Kanu was just arrested, correct? Before this all kicked off. Yeah. They tried to kill him a few years ago. He fled, and then he eventually secretly ended up in Israel. So everybody thought that was an actual... He, he claims the Mossad helped him out. It could be, by the way, that there was a period of time um, without me... I'm not going to go into details. I did have meetings with people people here in terms of high, high enough up. Um or their, their handlers, let's just say, about Biafra. And, and, I was, and, and there, was, there, there was a point in time, you know, in, in, the, in this whole thing where there was a thought of maybe possibly helping out. That, that's definitely not happening now. But, but um, and in that reality, he was, um, they, they, tried to, they tried to kill him and the Nigerian government, and he ends up here. So, there might have been a, a thought process if we have this leader here, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll uh, use him in a bit. But but he was he told he was told to leave the country, Israel, because he was causing a bit of a stir with Nigeria. Mm. So that was that, and now he's arrested in jail there. So you're saying that the way we should understand the Nigerian situation, and in the Jewish connection aside, the way we should understand the Nigerian situation is. Uh, the Bihari government, the government of Nigeria is basically an American-backed state, you know, that's armed with U.S. weapons and is controlling the oil of the Biafra region. And the people of Biafra want independence. They want to be separate from Nigeria, um, but that's in nobody's interest. Is that correct? That is 100%. That's correct, 100%. And, and, and it's and very analogous to our situation to a certain degree, although the, we're the ones who are weaponized uh, by America, if you want, but, but, but in reality, what's going on in the larger context is it is similar in the sense that the British came to the Middle East and also broke apart indigenous cultures and forced us to fight against each other and um, you know, militarized the entire region. Uh, so we each need more weapons to hold each other off. You know, divide and conquer like the British uh, did all over the place. They did it in Afghanistan. They did it here. They and, and in Africa, really, Nigeria is the the ultimate example of of, of just pure. Um, I don't know how you know. Let's just say evil by the way the British handled them. You know, they saw they found, they, when they found oil there, that was it. The indigenous people or the people that were in the oil region were the ones that were suppressed. I mean, classic British uh, move. Right. I see. And now the Americans see that Nigeria, they need to keep Nigeria going or you have a tremendous uh, problem with oil. So mm -hmm. they just keep, 
continuously militarize the most violent leader um, it, it's ever had in order to you know suppress those populations that would cause it a problem, give it a, you know, cause problems for it. And so at this point, you expect that uh, the Bihari government will hold our friends as long as they can, but with the expectation that they're going to set them free, you know, sooner rather than later. They want to make a point. They're holding them to make a point. They they're not. Don't come down here. Mm -hmm. And it means little that, uh, that these guys were just there to film a documentary about uh, Jewish practices among the Igbo. That's the whole point. So what would you suggest in terms of being able to get our friends free? We want to bring, you know, Rudy home. We want to bring Noam home. And even though I've never met David, we want to bring him home too. Like it's important to us to bring all three of them back home, back home to Israel as soon as possible, safely, quickly. What do you suggest we can do in order to put pressure on the Nigerian government to release them? The only, I, I think the U.S. government is going to have to, would have to get involved. The Israeli government has very little leverage um, in this. The U.S. government has all the leverage because the U.S. government's providing weapons to Bahari. And so they, the Biden administration would have to be the one to put pressure on, uh, on Bahari to let, to let them go. So Israel has a very limited role in this, or Israel has a potential to play a very limited role. Yeah, because only because Israel has, has, has failed in recent years to, to not stand up for um, the Evo and put on the table to Buhari, hey, listen, these business deals we have in Lagos, these business deals we have all over the place are going to go away unless you treat them differently. They refuse to do that. And because of that, there is little leverage. Buhari knows he can push the Israeli government around as long as he doesn't arrest any of the businessmen in Lagos or Abuja. Well, now he's arrested some people. Yeah, there's filmmakers that are like idealistic, uh, you know, it's a different thing. Right. And I imagine that Netanyahu, uh, you know, Bibi Netanyahu would have been able to handle this differently than uh, Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett. Oh, there's no question about that. I don't want to make a claim I 100% don't know, but like, I'm not surprised this took place when Bennett's in power, not when Bibi's in power. I mean, there's other people that went down there during Bibi's time. And I, you know, I never heard of an Israeli being arrested like this. And there were people that met with them openly. Um, so as I, once again, I don't want to like blame Bennett or anything, but, but I do see there's a weakness now internationally being pushed around now more. Uh, whether that directly led to this, impossible to know. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's weakening our ability to speak to them. Right. They just less respect. Like they just respect. 100%. I mean, I don't even know if it's Bennett. I think it's really Lapid, but uh, I think they, they respect whether it's Bennett or Lapid. I think governments like that of Nigeria probably have a lot less respect than they would for someone like Benjamin Netanyahu. There's no question about it that Bibi's thrust into Africa, pushing pushing Israel to make deals across Africa, put Buhari on a defensive, mm -hmm. and, and that he was much more nervous about Bibi. And I'll, and I'll explain. Remember, I, I talked about South Sudan. Right. If the Igbo had gotten their act together five, six years ago, it could be Bibi would have flipped it behind the scenes of the Mossad. Could have been. And Buhari, I bet, was afraid back then. So he was a little more nervous about, you know, doing these types of things. But, but he's not nervous anymore. Mm -hmm. So Bizrat uh, Hashem will be able to bring them home. And uh, I, I hope that the Nigerian authorities come to the conclusion quickly that they've made a mistake, that uh, these guys have nothing to do with the internal politics of Nigeria, and uh, they're just there to film a documentary and should be released and allowed to come home as soon as possible. I want to reiterate, they didn't make a mistake, the Nigerian government. This is part of the conflict right now, uh -huh. is that as far as the Nigerian government is concerned, a documentary like Rudy wants to do there is dangerous to them. 
Mm-hmm. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but that, that's that's how they view it. In their minds, they didn't make a mistake, which makes complicates Rudy and everybody else getting out. That's what complicates it. This is just what they do. So, so you're saying in terms of in terms of a strategy, pressure should be applied on the Nigerian government. Nigerian government from America. From the United States. Like that's the that, that's the move to get them released quickly. Pressure on the Nigerian government from the United States. That's right. All right. Well, Bizarat uh, they'll come home safe and soon, and uh, we'll be able to uh, celebrate with them. Uh, it's a big deal, you know, being locked up in a Nigerian prison. Like it's it's no joke. Nope, it can't be fun. I can't imagine it. You know, and, until now, um, and, until Tuesday, we've been working very hard to keep this story under wraps, to keep the story contained. We didn't want it to get out. You know, the families didn't want it to get out. Uh, and there was a lot of quiet diplomacy taking place. But uh, because the news broke on Tuesday, we've decided to move ahead and, and actually start discussing this out in the open. So I really, I, I, anyway, David, I really appreciate you coming on the show and helping to illuminate uh, the situation down in Nigeria so our listeners can actually understand the broader political context of what's happened to our friends down there. And Bizarre Dachem, we'll, we'll see them home soon. And uh, David, I wish you a uh, wish you and yours a meaningful nine days and a meaningful Shabbat, and Bizarre Dachem will be able to uh, celebrate better days together in Jerusalem. Amen, amen. Take care, Yehuda. Keep me up there. All right. Once again, this episode is dedicated to the memory of Fega Bat David and the elevation of her soul. Uh, you can check out the show notes over at visionmag.org backslash the next stage five seven. This is Yudah Kohen with Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, hoping to see our friends back in the land of Israel soon and wishing listeners a meaningful Tisha B'Av.